Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Friday, the 12th of November, and I want to um, I want to lead off this morning with a call to prayer. And I'm going to describe it as a call to prayer for parents, particularly a call to prayer for parents who whose children are in some kind of travail, facing some kind of particular challenge. I don't know, I was moved yesterday as I was uh, as I was driving and I was listening to um, news out of the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse and I'm I'm listening to um various people talking about what is happening in the trial and this very young man who is on trial and um the testimony of one of the individuals whom Kyle Rittenhouse shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake by police and the the riots that followed in that community. And nobody was addressing sort of the reality that, you know, these are real people, each one of them a precious person, each one of them with a past and a history and a future with a hope each one of them a part of a family. And my heart just went out and prayers went up um, for the families of each of the individuals involved. And so I just want to start there this morning. Without praying for your preferred outcome, can you pray for the people involved? Can you pray for Kyle Rittenhouse, no matter how you feel about what he did or the circumstances surrounding it? Can you pray for the families of the two men Kyle shot and killed and the one man, the one man whom he wounded? Can you pray for their families? Can you pray for everyone involved as closing arguments in that case are expected to begin today? And then let me invite you to pray with me today for another family. This is the Finster family. The Finster family lives in Huntington Woods, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. And in May, their son, Danny, who is a journalist, was arrested in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. He was uh, at the airport. He was set to get on a flight back to Detroit to see his family. When um, members of the, I don't even want to call them police anymore, because they're they're the military-empowered agents of this government, which now exists in Myanmar, which is, you know, a military junta. Remember that they had a coup. Remember all of this? Well, Danny was detained before he got on that flight. He's been in jail since on charges ranging from spreading false information, which really just means that he was reporting on what was happening among pro-democracy demonstrators as members of the military were 
um, orchestrating and carrying out a coup in that country. He's also been charged with a number of things uh, about inciting those who were seeking to liberate the country from the military, which seized control of the nation through force. Um, More than a thousand journalists like Danny were swept up and jailed. Each one of them has a family. Some of them are right here in the United States living in neighborhoods like Huntington Woods, Michigan. I bring up Danny today because um, his story is popping on the headline news here in the United States and around the world. Because yesterday, Danny was sentenced to the maximum time for each of the nearly dozen charges that he was facing. In total, he must pay. Now, when you hear this, you're you're just going to understand the difference in the value of time and the value of money. Okay, because his fine is the equivalent of 56 U.S. dollars. But the time that he must now spend in jail in Myanmar for having reported on the stories of those who were seeking to remain free, 11 years, 11 years. If you want to know more about this story, you can check out the website, bringdannyhome.com. You can follow the hashtag, bringdannyhome. Um, there's a story here, and it's a story that hasn't come to an end. It's a story that's in process. But pray with me today in the midst of this unfolding story for the Finster family in Huntington Woods, Michigan. And let's pray for the Rittenhouse family and the families of the others involved in the unfolding case um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Let's be praying today for families, for parents, for mercy, for grace, for justice, for freedom. All right, up first this morning, John Seidel. Um, He is a storyteller. John has aggregated and told the stories of thousands of people over the course of time, and he has his story to share. The book is Finding Rest. We'll be right back. Well, I'm pleased to welcome John Seidel to the program. He's a writer, author, speaker. He's a digital media veteran. He has helped start a top 50 news website, worked with some of the biggest names in culture. You guys know Chip and Joanna Gaines. We love them. He also works with Glenn Beck and Kirk Cameron. He's interviewed NFL Hall of Famers. Um, I've probably hit something that John has done that you uh, appreciate and love. He has published over 6,000 stories of others. On a website, on websites like I Am Second, and he's passionate about trans, transformative storytelling. He joins us today in part to tell us his story. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. I'm going to have you just follow me around, and you can just read that bio like every time <laughs> I walk into a store or something. I think that that, that was great. People, yeah, there you go. Well, here now, here now, I'm going to start with a question that I'm hoping you have not yet heard because. As a person who does this all the time, getting other people to tell their story, um, you know, your your probably startup questions in interviews are um, are worthy of all of us uh, like sitting and knowing what those are. So I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start in what might seem like an unusual place. I want you to hear this request as if it's coming from and maybe even arriving in the voice of Annie or Jack. So Mm. jammies are on tucked into bed, but their eyes are wide open, the lights are a little bit dim, and you hear this. Tell me a story. Oh, I got it. So um, 
we have created um, a <laughs> a series of stories that we call the Adventures of Jackson and Annabelle. What? And these are these are <sighs> stories that we just create, you know, on the fly. We've actually written some of them out. Maybe it's a book coming, but where we Jackson and Annabelle, I mean, they slay dragons, they you know slay monsters, and um, so we tell. The Adventures of Jackson and Annabelle. What? Okay, see, I, I now those are stories that I am very much looking forward to hearing um, in the future. You are a storyteller, um, and so you know a lot about the power of story. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about that? What have you learned about the power of story through your experience of telling other people's stories and then, you know, this new experience of telling your own story and finding rest? You know, there's just something so powerful about stories. We connect with them, right? I mean, it, it, there's there's a reason that Jesus talked through parables, right? There's a reason that story is just throughout the Bible. And um, and so I think, and I, and I talk about in the book how I want to tell everyone else's story that struggles, like I have with anxiety and OCD, by telling my story, because there's something that, that we relate to. And so story is, it's, it's you know, in true beauty and beast fashion, it's a tale as old as time, right? I mean, before there was written word, things were being um, um, handed down in stories. And so, um, you know, one of the best compliments I can ever get was actually someone who said, who was trying to um, uh, rate the book, and they're like, well, there's just a lot of stories in here. And I said, well, great. That, that, <laughs> then I've actually made it. You, what you think is a bad thing is actually a really good thing. So let's um, let's dive in a little bit into finding rest. Um, we're calling it a survivor's guide to navigating the valleys of anxiety, faith, and life. It's by John Seidel. We're going to take a super brief break. When we come back, um, John's going to take us into the book. He's going to tell us his story. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Come to me. Continuing our conversation with John Seidel, um, you can find him online. He is, uh, he's on Facebook, he's on Twitter, but you could just really easily go to his website, johnseidel.com, S-E-I-D-L is what you're looking for. We're talking today about his book, Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life. Um, so John, tell us a little of your story. Yeah, you know, I think I always knew there was something different about me growing up. I mean, just just things that I couldn't get out of my head, um, thoughts, ideas, crushes <laughs> when I was younger, um, and that that really carried with me throughout my life. But I just thought it was kind of, well, that's just that's just me, you know, that's just normal, um, and. As I went through life, you know, I tell people I don't know how I made it through high school or college with this um, feelings of anxiety where you're feeling just almost constantly like you're on the edge of a cliff looking down and your stomach is in your throat. And um, <laughs> like all like 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 most people, marriage refines you. And so when I got married about three years into it, my wife and I just hit a roadblock where she's just broken down in front of me saying, and, and this will be a phrase that people who struggle with anxiety have heard a lot is she says, John, I'm just, I'm always walking on eggshells. 
And um, when you see the woman you love just broken down in front of you, um, it kind of snaps you a little bit, right? And so it was then that I that I went and got help. And when I went to my doctor, uh, psychiatrist, and um, got my diagnosis of anxiety and OCD, it was actually it was just one of the most freeing moments of my life because I knew then what I was fighting. And I talk about in the book that that you have to name what's going on. And by naming something, you have power over it. And so when I got that diagnosis, I was able to name all this stuff that had been happening to me for years. And it was then that I kind of started this journey of fighting back. I think that um, knowing its name and fighting it, like that's so visual for me. I mean, I I think about the times when, um, you know, in Scripture, like, People want to know somebody's name, right? Like, I want to know the name yes. of the one I'm wrestling with, and I want to know the name. I want to know the name of the demon that's possessing this person, like, right? I mean, I, um, and sometimes it's legion. Um, we we can fight better in the name of Jesus if we if we sort of know which version of the enemy we're fighting right now. Um, and so I just think that's so helpful, and that is so powerful. Um, one of the things that I deeply appreciate about uh, about your book, Finding Rest is your treatment of the church. So you acknowledge that the church has handled people poorly in the past, um, and even in many, many, many places and spaces right now, the church is mishandling people, precious people, who, um, who are anxious, uh, who are OCD, who suffer a litany of, of other mental challenges. Um, but you hold out hope, and you say the church could do better. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, I like to approach this not from a I'm, I want to I want to just say everything the church is doing wrong, but but really in just I love the church, right? And so how can we do better? So I try to approach it in a loving way, and I think there's there's some areas like you said where the church generally has just said, well. If you um, have faith, if you pray a little bit more, if you repent of you know whatever you did last weekend or the night before, um, then everything's going to go how you want it to. And I loved how even in your opening monologue, you kind of talked about um, that in, in how we pray, right? Praying not just for what we want, but what the Lord wants. And so what I have found is that I think if the church does three things, one, point us outward, or excuse me, point us upward, right? Point us to Christ, right? I, I know I need to be pointed to Christ, right? But it can't end there. You also have to point us outward. You know, I tell pastors and church leaders all the time, listen, you, you are likely the preacher and you are the head counselor and you're also probably the head janitor, right? You don't mm. also have to be the mental health expert in your church, right? There's so much going on. So find resources and people that you can point us mental health sufferers to. And then finally is really just recognize it, right? Recognize that there are more people in your pews that are going through mental health challenges than you realize. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, suffered with depression, right? He and his wife wrote to young preachers and, and guided them through melancholy, as he called it. So if Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, right, is going through this, you can bet that other people are going through it in your church as well. I think that's true on almost every challenging topic. There's more people in our congregations dealing with pornography than we'd like to admit. There's more women sitting in the pews of our churches that have had abortions than we want to uh, imagine. Um, there are more people 
suffering with deep loneliness and doubt um, than we than we ordinarily allow our th- ourselves to think about because we don't we want we don't want to imagine that the church is just 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 filled up with broken, hurting, struggling people. But you know what? It is. It is. I'm one of them, right? Uh, and you're Amen. one of them. And if we all waited um, or or said, oh, you know, we can only can only join the perfect church. Well, you're going to ruin it when you arrive. So um, because none of us is perfect. Like, that's just not how this works. So thank you for being imperfect and sort of sharing out of your own imperfection. Um, because to be redeemed is to be a person who's in process, right? I mean, we're we're justified, we're saved, but none of us is perfect. Like we're, this process of sanctification um, goes on for a lifetime. So I want you to um, speak, if you will, John, directly to the person who's struggling this morning, right? They're struggling to get out of bed. They're struggling to get out the door. They're struggling to remain sober. They're struggling to remain in relationship. Talk to them today. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I, I want to say this. One, there is hope. I know it may seem like there is not a light at the end of the tunnel and the darkness is creeping in, right? But it just takes you cracking that door a little bit and that little bit of light that comes in, it it just takes a little bit of light to drown out the darkness, right? And so the other thing I would say is just take a step. You know, I talk about the fact that, you know, sometimes we can get so overwhelmed with the big picture. I like actually focusing on the small picture, right? The small steps. Um, you know, in in the, that movie Frozen 2, right, there's a song that's just do the next right thing. And before I get accused of like Disney theology here, that's actually something taken from Elizabeth Elliot. When Elizabeth Elliot's husband Jim was killed and she goes back to the jungle and they say, what are you going to do? And she goes, I don't know, but I'm just going to take a next step, right? So mm-hmm. I just want you to take one next step and break your day. If if you don't know how you're going to get through your day, how are you going to get from, from your bed to the bathroom, right? Can you break it down into that? And then just little steps from there on and then build off of each other. So uh, I live on a farm. And on Friday, one of the things we do is a little quick farm report. So my I will just attach my farm report now um, because it is about a cracked egg. Um, yesterday, every egg that came from the coop was already cracked, which I got to tell you, it's just not the way they're supposed to come to the house. It's just not, <laughs> not what's supposed to happen. So I, of course, look with uh, some furrow in brow and maybe some small uh, measure of scorn <clears throat> at the teenage boy who entered the house with the basket full of already cracked eggs. And I, before I laid into him, which of course was my temptation, I realized, you know what? I had to make tons of batches of cookies for a fundraiser at his school tomorrow anyway. So I'm going to, I was going to crack the eggs anyway. So I kind of laughed and looked at it and I said, what happened? And he said, I just dropped the whole thing. And I'm like, okay, well, let's be thankful that, you know, we can still, they're still usable. And, um, and then now that you've said, sometimes you just have to crack the door and let the light out. I'm thinking, you know what? The egg is no good with the shell on it anyway. You got to crack mm. it. You you got to you got to break the you you got to crack the door. You got to let the light shine uh shine in. And sometimes you, you know, you got to you got to let the egg out. There you go. That'll be my connecting point for what you have said to what I'm experiencing in my own life of cracked eggs. I love that so so much. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to use that. Absolutely. All right. So, um, John Seidel, what a delight. You're just precious. We can hardly now wait. Tell us the uh, 
Tell us the uh, the Jack and Annabelle. Uh, give us the give us the top line on that again, because I'm going to like put that on my let's pray for the Seidels as this is developing prayer list. The Adventures of Jackson and Annabelle. Um, okay. So we're we we've been telling them that every night, and so we're gonna we're gonna keep going and see where it goes. I love that. All right, The Adventures of Jackson and Annabelle. John Seidel, um, thank you so much. You guys can find John at his website and all the cool stuff that he's doing, including. Uh, connection to the book finding rest john's website is john j-o-n no h seidel s-e-i-d-l dot com john what a delight blessings on your day thank you so much carmen really appreciate it thank you we'll be right back when you think about social media what comes to mind Um, my guess is it's a particular social media platform the one where you most often engage. Maybe it's Twitter. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's Instagram. Um, maybe it's YouTube. Although maybe YouTube, I don't know. Is that a social media platform? I'll ask Chris Martin that question um, when we get together. Here's the conversation. Here's the the what we're going to try to till up um, today. Is social media a neutral tool? Like social media is a tool. Do you think of it that way? Um, If you don't think of it as a tool, how do you think of it? So it's a form of technology. It is a tool. It can be used for many things. I guess the question that we want to address with Chris is, is it neutral? And if I have thought about it as neutral, like, right, it's a tool in my hand and I use it for, um, you know, what I'm trying to achieve or communicate or learn, it's important um, to recognize that that tool kind of now has a mind of its own because of artificial intelligence. So that's the conversation we're going to have next with Chris Martin. We'll be right back. When it comes to our digital lives, privacy is a big issue. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Adults know the importance of keeping our bank accounts, our passwords, and our emails secure. But for moms and dads with teens under their roof, privacy takes on a new look. How much latitude do we allow teens on the computer and with their smartphones? Are parents supposed to pry? Okay, a few hints. First, determine what you will or won't allow in your home. When it comes to online behavior, make the boundaries age appropriate. Then communicate your expectations and stand by your consequences. If you need to, monitor Facebook or text. Privacy is a luxury, but an involved parent is essential. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, Chris Martin is back. You should definitely be following him um, on social media, but also at his Terms of Service blog on Substack. Chris, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. Glad to be back. Thanks. All right. Thank you for reading um, all of the Wall Street Journal's um, review section in the print paper on how to fix social media. We did not all read all of those. So what did you learn and what's the takeaway in terms of the neutrality of social media as a tool? Yeah, um, there's a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I recently got a, a digital subscription to the Wall Street Journal again. 
and after not having one for a year or two and um and they have a print a free print edition on saturdays if you're a digital subscriber so i was like well yeah i'll take it and be old-fashioned with my coffee and newspaper on saturday mornings um and so a couple weeks ago immediately kind of the saturday following the release of the facebook papers on october 25th um they published a handful of of short kind of quick hit opinion pieces in their review section of the paper um there was one from uh, there are a couple from employees at facebook or former employees at facebook there was one from david french which i'll mention in a minute there's one from Senator Amy Klobuchar, who has done a lot of work in Congress uh, around Facebook and, and social media in general. Um, and so I read all of them because they're very bite-sized. I mean, probably 500 words or so, very five five-minute reads, 10-minute reads at most. And they're all very thoughtful. Um, they're all interesting, different perspectives, some on should we or should we not regulate social media, some on specific problems around Facebook, um, some on kind of a more moral imperative. There are a lot of good perspectives, some of which I agreed with and some of which I didn't. Um, I was a little disappointed when I read David French's piece because I really respect David French. and I've, I've learned a lot from him over the years. Uh, he, sa- he says at one point in his piece, he writes, social media is a two-edged sword. The same technology that connects old classmates and helps raise funds for gravely ill friends also provides angry Americans with instant access to public platforms to vent, rage, and lie. Social media puts human nature on blast. It amplifies who we are. But so did the printing press and radio and television. And though he doesn't say it explicitly, uh, this is a sort of common refrain I hear from people who maintain that social media is a neutral platform. You can use it to connect with high school friends or you can use it to attempt to overtake the greatest democracy in the world. You know, one thing or the other. You just never really know what you're going to use it for. It's, It's a neutral blank slate platform. Um, and and it can be used for good or for ill. Um, and again, David French doesn't say that, but that's kind of the argument. Like, it's a two-edged sword. It's good or it's bad, and it just reveals that we're all sinful human beings, and that's why it feels bad. Um, okay, but can I, can I I've heard pause there? So mu- can I just pause there and say, I think that's because we're so afraid of admitting what you're about to tell us, which is that, it's not yeah. neutral. It's it. We don't enter into it as like equal players on a field. That's not what's happening. That's right. That's right. But but that's um, why we want. But that's why we want to keep imagining that it's you know that what you're about to tell us is not true. So I mean I know you already know that, but I just felt like I got to say that out loud, um, yeah. because some of us still have to be convinced that um, it's 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 just not neutral. Right. You're exactly right. We we don't we want to close our eyes to this and plug our ears and, and not not think about the ills that. Yeah, like like I'm going to say here that social media, first of all, I mean, if, if people listening to this are believers, I think they can all get on board with this, that social media is not a neutral tool uh, because it's created by sinful people um, and not like uniquely sinful people. It's not like I think people at Facebook are, are like worse sinners than you and I, but it's it's not like it's this neutral tool. That we like, it's not like we made fire or something. It's like, wow, look at this thing we discovered. Isn't it amazing? It's like, no, these are platforms created by people who are inherently broken and who have particular biases. They create math equations that we call algorithms that also have those biases. And these are all things that are created by sinful, broken people. So, sinful, broken people inherently cannot make neutral tools. That just doesn't, it can't happen. But even more so, like to get 
to particulars. When you see content in your Facebook newsfeed, you're not seeing like the most recent content that was posted by anyone you happen to follow. You're seeing the content that Facebook has decided it believes you're interested in seeing based on actions you've taken otherwise on Facebook or on other parts of the internet where Facebook has trackers that are they're tracking your information. That's why if you browse for a weighted blanket on Amazon for to put on your Christmas list and then you see ads or even just Facebook posts about the benefits of weighted blankets. That's how this stuff works. And so neutral platform Facebook and social media aren't because they're designed to create more engagement and to, they're designed to keep you on the platform for longer. And what the Facebook papers re revealed at the end of October is that unfortunately Facebook weighted content that expressed anger and division, they weighted it with more weight, with more importance in our algorithms, in our feeds, than they weighted content that was lighthearted or funny or cooperative in the general sense of the word. And so what that means is, and the reason they did that is because their research shows that the more division and the more fighting and argumentation people get into on Facebook, the longer they stay on Facebook and therefore the more money Facebook makes. So if you if you t and that's all like factual data that we now have by seeing Facebook internal emails and communication. So if we see all of that, I don't know how we can step back and say, oh, this is just a blank slate neutral platform that we can use for good or ill. I think it should be pretty easy to see that this that the cards are stacked against using this platform for uplifting and encouraging purposes. So it's been a couple of minutes um, being sure that people know. Um, about what it's doing to our brains, because we talk about this from time to time, Chris, but I, I don't think we could probably talk about it often enough. It, it's actually doing something to our brains. That's right. Yeah, I, even the earliest architects of the social internet, like Sean Parker, who is the founding president of Facebook, if you've ever seen the social network movie, it's Justin Timberlake's character. Um, even he says, you know, the people who created these platforms want to exploit a vulnerability in human psychology. That's his word. They want to literally hack our brains. If you've ever seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, you'll re you'll recognize this kind of uh, terminology. And if you haven't watched it, go watch it. Um, but I think it's good to remember like what John Green says, who's an author and observer of the internet, says the architecture of the social internet always seems to lift up the loudest and most divisive voices over more cautious and nuanced ones. He said that in 2018, and a lot of data that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks shows us that, yeah, the, the mathematical equations that decides what we see when we open our apps literally is designed to uplift the loudest and most divisive voices and not the most humble and cautious, nuanced ones. And so I think it's important that we recognize that when we spend so much time on these apps scrolling through anger and division, it can start to make us by default more angry and divisive. I talk to pastors from time to time who see this in their churches, and I think we're so often consumed with what we're seeing on our apps and on our phones that we don't take the time, perhaps because, like you said, we don't want to, we don't take the time to zoom out and ask, well, what's consuming all of this content actually doing to me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how's it changing me? All right, Chris Martin and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Um, we're going to talk about what's next, what's next out there, and that is the metaverse. Um, so Facebook is now part of something larger called Meta. Meta has some plans 
One of the things I'm going to ask Chris um, is, do you think that I can like already go ahead and buy property in the metaverse and build a church? And if so, can I advertise it? Mm-hmm. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. All right, now to talk with us about something that um, I know very little about. So, Chris, let's. Um, we're talking with Chris Martin. If you're not already following his Terms of Service blog on Substack, um, you need to be. Um, the, so talk with us about Meta, specifically talk with us about the Metaverse and what the rules for participation in the Metaverse look to be. Yeah, uh, the metaverse, every, you know, the, a couple of years ago, blockchain became like a marketing uh, uh, prop, I guess you could say. Like you heard commercials all the time, IBM's on the blockchain or this place is on the blockchain. It just kind of became this like cliche. Metaverse is quickly becoming that. Um, so after the Facebook papers came out a couple of weeks ago, um, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook uh, announced their name change to Meta and that they were now a metaverse company, not a social media company. Obviously, they still own Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, um, and they're still doing social media, but the nature of their organization has fundamentally changed. I think the reason Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook announced this was to divert attention from the Facebook papers, which I think they've successfully done because here we are talking about it. Um, And the metaverse is not new. Um, It first appeared in a uh, novel called Snow Crash uh, decades ago. Um, the con- so the concept of the metaverse is not new, but we are now for the first time getting to the point where we're going to have some technology to actually create a metaverse. So a great definition of a metaverse uh, comes from Matthew Ball, who has a primer on the metaverse. He writes, the metaverse is a massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time 3D worlds that can be experienced at the same time persistently by an unlimited number of people where data and currency and communications transfer between everything. So it's almost like an internet of internets, if you will. And, and if you hear about cryptocurrency, like that would be like the money on the metaverse, I guess you could say is one way of thinking of it. That's an oversimplification, but that's like one way of thinking of it. Um, and the, the idea is not that all this talk about the metaverse, the idea is not that we're going to be like, sitting in our living rooms with headsets on for 12 hours a day in the next five years. Like, I don't think people should get this idea that, oh, there's no way people are just going to live online in the next decade um, or even in the next two decades. I don't think that's what we should have in mind here. It's not like you have to go zero to 100 in that way. Um, But I think that we see see evidences of the metaverse in things like Fortnite where you have – uh, people playing Fortnite, a lot of teenagers and even young adults playing Fortnite where they they use real money to purchase an in-game virtual currency, V-Bucks as they're called, to buy virtual clothing and, and other such like digital items for their character. And then they play a video game that's a video game, but it's also like a social like third space hangout experience, like after school, etc. A lot of video, Fortnite's just one example, but a lot of video games are like that today. Minecraft, Roblox, any parents listening know those names um which where you kind of transfer offline assets into these online digital assets there's also a lot of conversation right now around, around nfts which are non-fungible tokens or digital collectibles or or um digital items you can own 
in the internet and what may eventually become the metaverse. And so naturally, a lot of conversation spinning up around the metaverse right now is like regulation or not even like not like government regulation, but like moderation, content moderation. How are we going to uh, prevent perhaps a lot of the problems that we've been dealing with in social media in the last decade? How can we can we set up this future online 3D existence where perhaps we're wearing goggles or maybe just fancier glasses of some kind? Can we create that environment in such a way that we don't have to worry about all of the bad actor content getting into the feeds of normal people like you and me like we do today? And so there's just a lot of conversation around that. And, and obviously, Facebook is leading the charge uh, now as meta and focusing on the metaverse. And we'll just have to see how it goes. I'm interested to see like um, how how the technology comes along uh, to your question you asked before the break. Like, no, you can't really like set up a church per se. And I, I wouldn't advise that, frankly. Um, but there are people who are having like spiritual experiences in the metaverse. Like I have a friend who who like disciples people in some of these online 3D experiences. And it's, it is a real mission field, I think. And so if you're tech savvy enough to get involved in spaces like this, I don't think it's like bad or, or that we should avoid it. There's a great article on TGC that was posted last week called How to Prepare for the Metaverse by Ian Harbour and Patrick Miller. I'd encourage you to read that. It's a really great kind of like Christian introduction to what the metaverse is and what it means and what it could mean for Christians. And I think it's something that we should be prepared for and not fear. It's not something we're going to prevent. I don't think people are going to be going to church online totally in the next 10 years, unless we have a series of more pandemics like we've had, uh, which let's hope that doesn't happen um, for a number of reasons. I don't think people are going to be like going to church in their VR goggles in a decade or two. But I do think there are going to be ways that, you know, like if you work from home, you get a you get a work assigned laptop. Well, in a decade, we may be assigned work assigned VR headsets. And now instead of having Zoom meetings, we're having meetings in VR with our VR headsets. So I just think that's something we should be aware of and that we shouldn't fear, but just learn how to have sort of a Christian theology and Christian perspective around. Okay, so on the topic of um, developing a healthy theology around all things digital, remind us, um, because I know that for authors who are working on things, um, you know, doing what you just did, which is drop into current reality, what's the book that—remind us what you're working on. I know you're working on a book. Could you just remind us about that? Because we would like to be praying for you specifically on that topic. Yeah. Um, in February, I, I'm working on a book that will release in 2023, a new one. But I have a book coming out in February called Terms of Service that I'm oh, sure well, you and you I go. may chat about even more as we get closer. Yeah. Uh, it's called Terms of Service. Super easy to understand. And it's it's really focused on – it's written for um, even Christians or non-Christians. I intentionally made it not feel like a theology of social media so that you could give it to your non-Christian friend or family member and, and they'd be comfortable, not feel like they were – being necessarily evangelized to the whole time, I guess you could say. Uh, and I wrote it just to help us do a lot of the thinking that I described in our first segment where, hey, let's let's think about what scrolling on social media is doing to us. Let's think about mm -hmm. what connecting with people around the world is doing to us. And let's just kind of zoom out. And so that's called Terms of Service. It releases in February. I think you can pre-order it on like Christian Book or Amazon right now. Um, but like I said, you know, maybe after the new year, we could even talk a little bit more about that when it's a little bit closer. But yeah, that's what the, that project hopes to do. 
Okay, I love that. All right, so we will look forward to that. We'll pray um, for you as you're working on even the book beyond that, which I know, see, that's the cycle of writing that I think is hard for um, people who aren't publishing books to understand. And so thank you for, um, thank you in advance for the Terms of Service book and for the one that um, you're writing on a fo- as a follow-on to that. Um, and thanks for taking the time to join us today to help us understand, you know, the things, Chris, that you're paying attention to that, frankly, we're not all paying attention to all the time. And it's really helpful to have you um, as our touch point, as our connecting point to not only this information, but to what it's doing to us um, as people. So thank you so much. Of course. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. You guys can find Chris Martin on Twitter at ChrisMartin17. You can also find him at his Terms of Service blog. Yeah, that's going to be the name of the book, too, Terms of Service. All right, we'll be right back. All right. Hey, Paul Perot, you're yeah. still here and I'm yes. still here. Mm-hmm. You just got back from Honduras. Tell I us uh, tell us something we need to know. Um, there are some great people down there, some mama bears who are just loving up on, on kids in broken situations uh, at these places called Hope Centers. And I just got to tell you, meeting some of them, they are amazing people. Mm. And we'll we'll talk more about that in January, uh, but I tell you, just meeting these people and just totally in awe of what they're doing in such difficult situations, but showing such great love, it, it was totally amazing. Well, thanks for going, yeah. um, and thanks in advance for all the ways you're going to share with us. Let's uh, let's take a minute to pray for the mama bears uh, in Honduras, working at Hope Centers today with with broken and orphaned and disadvantaged children. Let's pray for the mama bears in our own communities as well. I bet you've got some mama bears in your neighborhood. I bet there are some in your church. Maybe you are one. Um, I'm one. Let's uh, let's be praying for each other today um, and for the generations whom we are now imprinting with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Like, you are the pattern um, after which the little ones who come after you are, I mean, you're, you are what they're going to duplicate. So let Christ be seen in and through you today. Represent Christ in the smallest of places, in the next step, um, both in your home and in the world that God so loves. I mean, let's be people who are loving up others uh, in the spirit of Christ. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.